The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Whenever I sing that song, I think about how we could switch the words instead of the world behind me and the cross before me, we could say the cross behind me and the world before me because that is also true. And so, so glad to be able to be sharing the word this morning. And um, my name is Terry. I'm one of the pastors here. And and if you're newer with us, uh, we're joining us to this morning. We have been studying our way through the early chapters of the book of Genesis, and we've been enjoying uh, this book of beginnings. It's really a book of beginnings, and it lays the foundation of so much of the rest of the Bible. And so understanding, especially the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, is so critical to understanding what God has to say in the rest of his word and so we've called this series uh, Foundations of the Faith. And uh, as, as um, Kevin shared earlier, we're going to be having a Q&A this Wednesday if you're interested in joining me uh, in the office common area. If you've gathered some questions over the last month or so and you want to chat about those, uh, come and join me and uh, we'll see if we can explore some answers together. Uh, last week we studied from Adam to Noah, kind of a big swath we, we had, uh, but we were studying the genealogy of Adam, and we uh, saw that the author is interested in two of the sons of Adam. We saw that um, through chapter 4, the last half, and all of chapter 5, the author brings us to understand the line of Cain, chapter 4, and then the line of Seth and from Adam to Noah through the line of Seth is especially unpacked. And we saw two things that were critical last week that I'll just mention. We saw, first of all, that in that huge span of time, there was this downward slide of morality, of godlessness. And we also saw in that that God in his mercy to humanity the, the ones who he created in his image, he determined that he would preserve a faithful remnant. And he found people throughout that time who walked with God, who walked with him and who were faithful. And so we saw those two elements. Enoch walked with God, as did Noah, whom we are going to study today. And so this morning, we're going to study the life of Noah. I thought this was kind of witty. And, Need an ark? I know a guy. So, <laughs> I thought, you know, explain it later if you want. <laughs> so I had a trouble naming this sermon because um, I started about two weeks ago uh, thinking that maybe I will call this the flood that destroyed the world. That's pretty simple to understand. Then I kind of moved to the flood that changed the world and this morning I have arrived at the flood that saved the world. And I hope that by the time I'm done my message this morning, you'll understand why we had to land here, the flood that saved the world. Now the story of Noah and the ark is generally saved for children, isn't it? We see so many church nurseries, we see so many children's books, and they love to paint the rainbow in the sky, and they love to have the animals two by two, hippopotamus and kangaroo, sticking their heads out of the ark and so on, and it's incredibly beautiful to see. Um, and um, yet the, 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 voice, the message of Noah 
and the ark is not so much uh, a children's story in that sense. And um, it would be so much easier if I could preach to you this morning about Noah, the conversation, uh, con- conversationist, the conservationist, or Noah, the zookeeper, or Noah, the environmentalist. I'm sure that we could uh, hear people that do that sort of thing with the text of Genesis that we're going to look at. But uh, the, the, the really main plot of the story that we're going to be studying this morning is not a cute little happy story. It's about the judgment of God upon humanity. It's about a flood of global proportion that destroys the entire population of the earth except for eight people that are saved in, in the ark. And so this morning... Um, we're going to be looking at this story and hopefully be faithful to it. Now, not too many people will argue that there was something like a flood in the history of this earth. Not too many people, creationists or non-creationists, believers or atheists, will argue that there was something incredibly cataclysmic and catastrophic that happened because we see in so many geological formations and fossils and layers of rock The evidence of something huge, something has to explain the mysteries that are left behind in the layers of the earth's crust. I saw an interview recently with uh, the well-known ABC News uh, anchor person, Christiane Amanpour, and she was interviewing a man by the name of Robert Ballard, who is one of the world's most known or best known underwater archaeologists. So he goes down into the bottom of oceans and seas and studies what former uh, civilizations were found and so on. And uh, he probed the depths of the Black Sea off the coast of Turkey and discovered what he believes, his team believes, to be an ancient civilization from the time of Noah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's incredible to think about those kinds of things. The, the fact is, though, that the Bible that you have in your hand was not written It was not written uh, to explain fossils or to explain the mysteries of layers of rock formation. It was given to us as a deposit of truth that is going to weave the theological significance of where God and humans relate together throughout all of time. And if you don't understand that's the purpose of the Bible, you'll get lost in all kinds of quagmire about things that the Bible is not even going to address for you. And so it is God's redemptive plan to save a people from ourselves, really. It's incredible. The mercy and love of God bleeds through the whole Bible if we understand its truths, even through times of judgment. And that is why when we look at art, history, and the depiction of the flood, we don't get cute little rainbows and children's stories with arcs. We don't don't see that. In fact, we see very dark imagery. Here's one from a French painter in the 19th century, a man by the name of Gustave Dore. He painted this called, called the deluge, and, and you can see in this that, the, that there's the flood, and there's darkness, and there's two parents that are pushing their children up on a rock because they're drowning and they're dying, and on that rock is a huge tiger waiting to devour them. Not a pretty picture. The kind of imagery that we see throughout art history about the flood is dark. It's about people that are drowning and dying. 
and that is about people that are being left behind. So we can't, we can't gloss over the realities of what this story is all about. It is this very historical reality, historical reality that led Ken Ham and the group of people at Answers in Genesis to build a replica of Noah's Ark in northern Kentucky. Some of you might have been there to see it. The boat stands seven stories high. Its length is one and a half football fields. It cost $100 million to build. It attracts about two million visitors every year. There are no live animals on the ark, but there's a zoo right behind it. And it was built to remind humanity of the history, the real history of the flood. And then in the exhibits inside, to explain the significance, not just the historical significance, the theological significance, what God is saying about himself and to us even today. This past September, our children's ministry changed our curriculum. And after, after much study, Sheila Taylor, our children's ministry director, and her team that she worked with, came to uh, the Gospel Project. That's the curriculum that our church uses now. And in October, they studied the story of Noah. And they did not just study the, the rainbow and the cute animals and so on. They studied what the significance of the flood was. They studied the fact that God is holy and that he must judge sin. The leaders were encouraged to ask the kids, your kids, to think about God's greater plan that is way beyond the flood. Your kids were asked to think about what God's greater plan in his love might be, and it pointed them to Jesus. And they were talking about Jesus who took our punishment on the cross. And I love this line <clears throat> from the curriculum, I think at the older level of the Sun Seekers. The, the quotes from the leader's manual said, the story of Noah points ahead to a greater rescue. <clears throat> the story of Noah points ahead to a greater, <clears throat> excuse me, a greater rescue, and that's what I want us to see today. Would you take your Bibles, and if you have one, uh, turn to Genesis chapter 6. All right, Genesis chapter 6, if you're able to stand, would you stand with me now? Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark will be 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to them to keep them alive with you. 
They shall be male and female, of all the birds according to their kinds, of all the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into the ark to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. And Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. May God bless his word. You may be seated. John Piper once said this. He said, one of the major doctrines of the history of Christianity is that history itself is God's highway to an appointed future. History is not a random path cut through the countryside by people without a compass. It is a highway that leads from creation to consummation. It is engineered by God who directs everything. History, he says, is going somewhere. And then he says this. He says, if you don't believe in a God who is powerfully involved in history, then the only explanation of events you will look for are past causes, not future purposes. But as soon as you reckon with the God of the Bible, tomorrow will always be part of today's explanation. Amen. I want this message today, I want you to walk home with this message in your mind. I want you to walk home. My prayer has been this week that no one will get snagged on the questions that surround the text, the story, that you will not stumble over the mysteries that seem to defy logic, but rather that you will walk home thinking that, yes, God has me in the place I'm in right now for a future purpose. I will understand it one day. Oh, so many people get snagged on this story of Noah and all the details. How did those thousands of species of animals get on that boat? How did they possibly get enough food to feed them? How could eight people give that many animals their food each day? Somebody even went to the bother of estimating how much urine that many animals would have in a given day. Do you want to know how many? 78,750 liters of urine every day. <laughs> That's so important. <clears throat> so many questions that God does not give us the answers for. But God did give us the scripture for a reason, and our job has to be, what is that reason? It is an eternal, it is to our eternal peril that we avoid or ignore the reason God gave us this story. And so with this in mind, I'd like, to, I'd like to look at three things about the life of Noah. I'd like to talk about Noah as the son of Adam who walked with God. I'd like to talk about Noah as the father of Moses who was saved by God. And I'd like to talk about Noah as the preacher of righteousness that was used by God. So first of all, as we talked about earlier, we see that Noah is indeed the son of Adam who walked with God. We see 10 generations from Adam to Noah. We mentioned the fact that these are only representative generations. This is like telescoping where the high points of the lineage are counted on, demonstrating the completeness of the line of Adam through Seth to Noah is this 10 generations that are counted of in chapter 5. And when he mentions Noah at the end of chapter 5, he pauses. The author stops right there. 
And then he goes on <clears throat> to, for three chapters to talk about the life and times of Noah. And what we read about is that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, chapter 6, verse 8. Noah found favor in the eyes of God. It, it implies a relationship with God, that he was someone who pursued God in a, in a generation that was not pursuing God. We read about in chapter 6, verse 9 as well, that Noah was a righteous man, verse 9. <clears throat> this word means this idea of doing what was right. He just lived the right way as God had, had made humans to live. He says in the same verse that, that uh, he was blameless in his generation. And the word blameless here has the, word, has the idea of moral uprightness and integrity. This man, Noah, in the midst of a dark generation, was a man of integrity. And it says in the scripture as well that he walked with God. The writer is wanting us to think way back to the time before the fall when Adam used to walk with God. He's wanting us to think about his son Abel who offered a righteous sacrifice. He's wanting us to think about Seth who replaced Abel who also walked with God. He's wanting us to think about the seventh in line from Adam, Enoch, who also walked with God. And he's saying Noah was one of those guys. He was a, a walker with God. He didn't walk in step with the world. He walked in step with God. <clears throat> and so, in this sense then, our introduction to Noah states that he was one who knew God. And then it says that Noah did all that God commanded. He, he obeyed God. So that's our introduction to Noah. He was the one who Adam should have been, so to speak. God was starting over, wasn't he? Brand new, brand new generation, brand new slate, a new Adam found in Noah. Noah was Adam's son and starting over. I liked what an author by the name of Kenneth Matthews says this. Noah is depicted as Adam revived. He is the sole survivor and successor to Adam both walk with God, both are recipients of the promissory blessing, both are caretakers of the lower creatures, both father three sons, both are workers of the soil, both sin through the fruit of a tree, and both father a wicked son who is under a curse. <clears throat> In the case of Adam, it was Cain who killed his brother Abel and was cursed. In the case of Noah, it was a, the son named Ham, in whom is found later on the Canaanites. All of the Canaanite tribes are descendants of Ham, who become the enemies of Israel, all the Canaanite tribes. And so we see this incredible intentionality in history. Chapter 6, 11 tells us this backdrop of a godless world, and in that, in that godless world, God is compelled in his holiness to judge sin and in that, there's one man that stands out, and his name is Noah, the son of Adam who walked with God. Next, I'd like to talk about Noah as the father of Moses, who was saved by God. And um, I want to be clear here, I did not get my genealogical records all confused. No, please, please hear me, no, uh, Moses is not a bloodline descendant of Noah, okay? Moses is of the tribe of Levi, and Noah 
was the, the very fountainhead of the tribe, the Messianic tribe of Judah, which would lead to Jesus Christ. We are not confusing bloodline here. So why would I say then that Noah is the uh, father of Moses? Well, I believe that if we follow the covenants that God made with his people, we see this. For example, Adam was a covenant made. The next one is Noah. The next one is Abraham, and then Moses, and then David, and finally the new covenant found in Jesus Christ. So that's one way of tracing it. But, but you're asking me, well, where do I find it in this text? And in this text that we're looking at this morning in chapter 6 of, of Genesis, we find it in just one word. And it's the word ark, the, the boat that saved Noah and his family. So the word ark in Hebrew is the word teba. And in chapter 6, verse 14, it says, God tells Noah, go build yourself an ark of gopher wood and make rooms in the ark and so on. And that word is used five times in chapter 6 to 9. And in all of the Bible, it's used only one other time. It's used of the basket that is is baby Moses is put in in the Nile River. That's the only other time that this word is used, this word ark. So Noah was saved in an ark, and Moses was saved in an ark. And when we look at those two things in their beginnings, we see then that, that there's an incredible correlation to be made. What is that correlation? Well, first of all, let's talk about that story of Moses. Remember Pharaoh? Pharaoh uh, was, was concerned that the Israelites were growing in number far too great. And as a slave people, they were worried that they would overcome the Egyptians and, and so on. And so Pharaoh instructed the midwives of the Hebrew women to kill every male child that was born. Now Moses' mother somehow was able to have the baby and uh, the midwives let that baby live. And the baby was kept secret for three months. And so for three months, Moses, as a baby, was with his mother. And then the mother takes the little baby Moses and, and makes a basket, an ark, and goes down to the Nile River secretly and puts it among the reeds. The, the daughter of Pharaoh is going down with her maidservants to actually bathe in the Nile River, and she hears the baby crying. She sends someone to, get, to, get the, to retrieve the basket, and she finds this little beautiful three-month, four-month-old Hebrew baby. And interestingly enough, the servant girl that he, she sends to go and find a Hebrew woman that will nurse this Hebrew baby, the servant girl happens to be Moses' older sister. And the woman that she goes to get to nurse the baby is Moses' mother. And Moses' mother is not only able to raise her own son, but she's paid by Pharaoh's court to do so. Now, isn't that great? Isn't that an incredible story? And that's the story that God worked that miracle out. And so, so we see in this scripture that both Noah and Moses were caretakers of a covenant with God. Incredibly important. Secondly, they are both placed in an ark to save them from death. They are both delivered from water by the grace of God. They both begin a new era of God's relationship to his people. 
By the way, when, when he's placed in an ark, notice that in chapter 7, verse 17 of, of Genesis, it says that God put Moses in the ark and he shut him in. Noah could not have gotten out of that ark if he wanted to. God shut him in, it says. He was as helpless then as Moses was in the basket in the Nile because God was fulfilling his purposes, his redemptive plan through Moses, through Noah. And so he begin, they begin a new era of relationship to, to, to God's people, and then they're both given detailed instructions, and they obey God. One to build an ark, one to build a tabernacle. And there's incredible correlation going on here. And they're both mediators with God's people through sacrifice. The very first thing we see Noah do after after the water settles and the ark settles in the mountains, Mount Ararat, is uh, he gets out and he sacrifices. Remember, he had kept seven of the clean animals and he sacrifices some of those animals to God right off the bat. And it points forward to a pure sacrifice that we'd see in Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 11, 7, it says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed the ark for the saving of his household, and by this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. And so we see this incredible man uh, being very similar to Moses. Now let's move on to the final point. Where do we get this idea of the preacher of righteousness used by God? Well, we don't get it until the New Testament, actually. It's in the book of 2 Peter that we read that he is a preacher of righteousness. It says, For if God did not spare the ancient world, 2 Peter 2.5, but preserved Noah, a herald or a preacher of righteousness, along with seven others, when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then Peter goes on this long sentence, and then three verses later he finishes by saying, um, then, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And so, so we might ask, how was Noah used by God as a preacher of righteousness? How was he used by God? It seems that no one listened to him. People probably walked by Noah and scoffed. I mean, what a fool. The, the, the estimates that I read of those who studied the text and thought through the logic of it guesstimate that Noah took between 50 to 100 years to build the ark. This is not some kind of a little project that happened on the side. This was Noah's life calling. And people would have known that guy down the road that's building this enormous construction project. What a jerk. They would have walked by and scoffed and mocked. But one, I want you to know that they had years and years to listen to his preaching on righteousness, that God's judgment was impending. They had years to, to understand more, to cease their wicked ways, and to think about what a righteous life that God calls every human to. They would walk by Noah each year and uh, Happy New Year and, and say, well, you, doing the same thing you did last year, Noah. Doing the same thing you did last decade, Noah. Do 
And so, where does this go? Again, I want to say to you, we don't get the sense of it from the past. We get the sense of what's going on here from the future. And Jesus reminds us, Jesus reminds us that just as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Luke 17, verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. What was it like in the days of Noah? Jesus says they were eating and they were drinking and they were marrying and they were being given in marriage right up until the day, the day that Noah entered the ark and the floods came and destroyed them all. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be the coming of the Son of Man. What was it like in the days of Noah? The three parts of the story of Noah are this. There was wickedness of man on on earth, that his evil heart was corrupted continually, that God's patience came to an end, and that he decided he had to judge sin and destroy unrepentant sinners. And yet, God never gave up on his purpose to restore and redeem and keep a remnant of faithful people who would pursue him. These three points unpack the entire story of Noah. Just as it was in the days of Noah, Jesus said, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. That means that the wickedness of men will become great as we see the men's, men and women's hearts continually given over to evil. I don't think we've even begun to see the kind of wickedness that we will see, folks. I believe that still in this generation here in Canada, we are being, being, living off of the fat, living off of the residue of the Judeo-Christian roots that our country was built on. We will see wickedness grow, I believe. We will see persecution happen. That God's patience will come to an end. That's not a message that anyone wants to hear. If we were, give, if we were giving this text to every pulpit in Winnipeg, would this message come out? And I don't say that in any kind of pride or boasting. I, I'm just saying, boy, there's a, there's a strong majority opposition to preaching the whole gospel. But God's patience will come to an end, folks. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. We are living in an age of grace. And just as it was in the days of Noah as well, God will not relinquish his purpose. Praise him. Praise him. He is a God of mercy, a God of grace. He will save the faithful. He will save a remnant. He will make sure that his beautiful image that he implanted in every human will be shining brightly throughout all of eternity, giving Jesus Christ the glory, who himself is the image of God. 
forever praised. <clears throat> so so, so the, there needs to be some good news here. And the good news is, very simply, that he found in chapter 8, verse 1. There's good news in the flood story, folks. The good news in the flood story is it says in chapter 8, verse 1, but God remembered Noah. Do you know that somebody counted the but God's verses in the Bible? Do you know how many but God verses there are in the Bible? There are 31 but God verses in the Bible. <laughs> I love it. Blackness, darkness, awful stuff, but God. But God. Let me share a couple with you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen? Acts 2.24, this Jesus you crucified, but God raised him from the dead. Amen? I love the, I love the passage in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrated his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the one in Ephesians, you were dead. You were spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, made us alive with Christ. Oh, it is by grace you have been saved. That's good news. The but God verses is the good news verses. And this morning, you need to know the good news. If you're walking on the dark side of the good news yet, and you haven't come into the light that God knows you and God remembers you and God is looking for your heart to change, you need to know this morning you're living in an age of grace that the patience of God will run out as it was in the days of Noah. So shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. We don't know when Jesus will return. We don't know when we will die. One of those two events is going to bring short your existence in this physical body, in this physical earth, and you will, you will go and rise and you will stand before the living God. Every one of us. And only the righteousness of Jesus that you have by faith in him, what he did on the cross, only that will, will enable you to stand on that day. And so there's good news. There's good news. God has given you a gracious opportunity to be in a covenant relationship with him. Whereas, like Kevin said earlier, he does all the heavy lifting. You just need to show up. You just need to say, yes, Jesus Christ, you, you are my righteousness. Your cross paid it all. I believe in you. Take my, take my life, the mess I've made. Take my sins. Take my future. Take all of me. From now on, I'm, I'm yours. I want to be faithful. I want to be found faithful. Remember again the message that Piper said earlier. I said, if you don't believe in a God who is powerfully involved in history, then the only explanation of events you will look for are past causes, not future pur purposes. But as soon as you reckon with the God of the Bible, tomorrow will always be part of today's explanation. 
To me, folks, the only thing that makes sense in the story of the flood, the only way that story makes sense to me is that God, in his mercy, was preserving a faithful people that through his son would come to be the, the image bearers that shine forth of the glory of God. That's the only way the story makes sense to me. And if we are mocked, if we are mocked as Noah was mocked, if, if we are seen as living on the wrong side of history, one day, folks, one day everybody, every soul will understand who was living on the wrong side of history. One day, it doesn't matter whatever perseverance is needed, whatever persecution you face, whatever mocking or ridicule, it doesn't matter. If, if somebody wants to see me as an anti-intellectual preacher that still believes in a flood and God's judgment pending and so on, well, that's fine. I just want to be able to stay, say one day when, when I stand before the Lord, oh God, I did my best. I built that ark. I, I preached that righteousness. I tried to live my, but I depend fully on what Jesus has done. You know, some people ask, is it going to get worse or better as we near the end of the age? And the answer is yes. <laughs> it is going to get worse and better. And I love the way, again, Quoting Piper this morning a couple times. I love the way he answered it. He was asked in a letter one day, what's coming? He said, a uh, person in a letter form, he said, what's coming? Can we anticipate widespread spiritual revival or should we to expect a deepening social degeneracy? <clears throat> I love the way he responded. He first of all responded by saying that the Matthew 24 passage the same as Jesus quoting the Noah passage, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. We know that's coming. We know it's going to get worse. But then he goes on to say that it doesn't tell us how fast it's going to come. It doesn't tell us whether it can come and recede. It's just coming. And we should live by God's command for white hotness, not God's providence. We don't live by trying to sniff out God's providence. We live by the commands of Scripture, not his providence that might let things get cold on earth. Who knows? You and your church could be among the wide awake, white hot servants when Jesus comes. My picture for ministry, Piper writes, is that wherever... I'm speaking wherever I'm living, wherever I'm pastoring, I'm going to torch the glacier, he says. It looks like a glacier is coming over Minneapolis. I've got my torch and the word of God and I'm poking the glacier and I'm melting big holes in the glacier so the glory of God is shining through. Who knows, perhaps enough churches poking enough holes in the glacier would make your city, Winnipeg, a vibrant, white-hot witness being found faithful when he comes. Amen. Don't you want that? No, about you, but I just want to be ready for that day. I want to be found faithful, whether it's because of Christ's coming or I dying. I want to be found faithful walking with God. I didn't get to some of the mission fests. I didn't get to any of the mission fest 
Boy, I, I wish I could have, but I heard that Nip Ripkin said yesterday, Mission Fest, he said, he said that at one point in his life, he only knew how to be a sheep among sheep, not a sheep among wolves. That just, Pat shared that with me, and I thought, whoa. I don't want to just be a sheep among sheep. I want to be a sheep among wolves. I want to be faithful to the end because I believe Jesus Christ wants to save a lot more people. So whatever happens, whatever comes, may we be found faithful. Amen.